from Battlefield Studio Alpha, welcome to the Wartime Leadership Podcast, where we explore what spiritual resilience looks like from different perspectives. We often focus on the physical, emotional, and social areas of resiliency, but too often we neglect the spiritual pillar. Now, this looks different for everyone. We will be exploring what spiritual resilience looks like in the lives of our guests, who are people from all different walks of life. I'm your host, Nathan Coy, and today's guest is Jonathan York with the Resilient Man Project. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm great. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. You know what? It's It's been a long time in the making between us. We've been talking for a couple of months. We had a little miscue, which, you know, I think was on my end. So that's fine. But uh, I've, I've really been looking forward to this conversation because just the title alone, Resilient Man Project, really kind of made me start to think. And the fact that you reached out to me and I was reading your background, just I mean, your your background screams resiliency. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a a bumpy road, that's for sure. A lot of ups and downs. A lot of downs in the beginning, for sure, and and now a lot of ups. Well, man, absolutely. You know, we were, we were talking about your family a little bit before this. We kind of went into to some of those those things that that you're most proud of, and you can just hear in your tone and how you speak about your wife and your, your son and stuff like that. Just you, you're definitely on a good trajectory going up. Yes, I, I think so as well. <laughs> well, Hey, before, a... uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you're good. Hey, hey, before we get too much into this already, let's start with five random questions and these can be easy. They aren't necessarily always easy, but what combination of fixings make you the perfect burrito? well uh so i mean at this point in my life you know i have a a very unique perspective so i'm going to take it with the i'm not going to use the literal terms but the burrito and the ingredients i'm going to say you know my my integrity my um you know the things that are most important to me are being authentic you know my integrity um you know, I'm a, I'm a, I think my life's, you know, the, the, man, these are tough. <laughs> I think that my life's journey has definitely given me a unique perspective. You know, I see things from, from a, a lot of different angles and, and from, you know, from the lowest of lows and, and the highest of highs. And I don't know, I, I think my perspective and my integrity and, and at this point, you know, the person that I am now, not so much in the past, but, but I think that's what makes me, makes me the perfect burrito. <laughs> all right hey i i don't i like i said i it's a random question generator these things uh <clears throat> you know they they uh they definitely come up completely random what is your most used emoji definitely the stealth face one <laughs> like the one where he's just like no like whatever i, I use that one a lot and, and then uh the mind blown one probably be a close second. Mind blown. Absolutely. Every time my son talks. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good mind blown or a bad mind blown, but every time he talks. Uh, describe one extravagance that you have, which you will never apologize for. Mm. 
I like like I don't really man. I'm a pretty simple guy. Uh, and uh, man. Is there anything that you splurge on? Yeah, I mean, I do, like, it, but it's like supplements and, and you know, the T-shirts from the places that I support are probably way overpriced, so let's say that. <laughs> well, there you go. Then that's actually perfect. Uh, yeah. Do you have any specialty cooking dishes that you yourself make? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a Southern, Southern born and raised, so I, I know my way around the grill and the smoker and, and those things. I, you know, before I really cleaned up my diet, um, I was kind of known for my ribs, so we'll go with ribs. Mm, I've actually tried to find a healthy version of ribs. Haven't been able to yet. Yeah, I don't think that's possible. Yeah, I don't, I, not at all. Okay, so this one was really weird. If you could kill anyone and get away with it, would you? Yes. See, there's the honest answer. Yep. Up until now, Absolutely. everyone's been like, nope. Wouldn't do it. Yeah, I would. There's some evil in this world that needs to be taken out, in my opinion. You are not wrong. Absolutely, 100%. Now, that question did did get me in trouble one time, because when I asked the person, they started to name names, and I was like, no, 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 no. We don't, we, don't, uh, we do not condone that on this podcast in yeah. any form whatsoever. What type Hypothetically of, speaking, hypothetically, if I was. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should actually add that in there next time. Hypothetically speaking, if you could. So I had to actually change it to would you instead of just, you know, who. Uh, what type of imaginary scenarios do you create in your head? I mean, this one's pretty easy for me because I'm a big meditation, visual, visualization, manifestation guy. So this morning, you know, I've, I have dreams of being a, a public speaker on stage of speaking. So that's that's probably the main thing that I visualize these days. That's a really good one to have. Have what's the largest audience that you've ever spoken to? I'm just really getting started on it. I've got a speaking coach, you know, who's kind of helping me put my story together and get get some things lined up. Hosting a virtual event and a, and a live event, kind of get my feet wet. So coming soon. Awesome. Hey, I can't wait to see more about that because listen, folks, you're you're about to learn a lot about Jonathan, and we're going to go down a little bit of a journey with him on his story, and you are going to be blown away by how resilient Jonathan truly is. And, and I know I'm setting the stage for you here because I really want to, because I know this is a special story and it's a special one for me to be a part of. So speaking of that, Jonathan, why don't you take us on a journey, bring us, you know, as far back as you want to tell us as much as you want to use this time as your testimony to tell us about you and where you've been and, and how you've gotten to where you are now. Sure. Sure. So, I think to really understand the beginning of my story, you kind of have to understand the the story that I was born into. <clears throat> and uh, so my mom, mom was 16, dad 17 in South Atlanta. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not much support really um, at all. And uh, I bounced around a lot, but my or my earliest memory is, is of me and my mom. Uh, my parents are already split up. I'm three. I'm right around three. My mom's on a mattress. Uh, there's no other furniture that I can remember in the apartment mattress on the floor, kind of sick all day from uh, either hungover or from some other addiction or, or something like that. And I'm trying to open a can of potato soup and uh, in the kitchen and can't really get it figured out. And I remember taking it to her and kind of getting her to help me open it. And, and I remember sharing that can of potato soup. So that's kind of the backdrop of 
of the my earliest years um is just that so I dig my mom an addict since since as since I was born since before I was born basically um and I uh, like I said I bounced around a little bit ended up with dad <clears throat> and stepmom kind of was a uh, you know they had other kids together and, and always kind of felt like the outcast there was you know definitely some alcoholism and stuff in that house um as well so I grew up in a in a really rough area in South Atlanta where gangs and and drugs and alcohol and drinking I think I drank and smoked at like 10 and I smoked weed for the first time, like around 12. So that was just kind of the, you know, we idolized drug dealers. They had the cars and the money and the girls, and that's just kind of who we wanted to be the gangsters or whatever you want to say. So that really set the tone for, for who I guess I wanted to be. Um, and then my mom was also very, you know, I watched my mom be very deceitful and never telling whole truths and always, you know, you know how it is when, when someone has an addiction, they, they never can give a straight answer. And there's always some form of de- deceit in just about everything. So fast forward a little bit, I have a fairly normal high school. Um, we kind of got out of that area, um, into the suburbs <clears throat> and, uh, fairly normal high school, tons of drugs, acid and ecstasy and drinking and, and eat and all those things. But when I got into my twenties, I had my daughter and son, my first daughter and son, and got married. <laughs> Addiction really came out in me hardcore. Um, the first house that I bought, I was like 19 years old, bought a house, and just so happened that the guy that lived on the same street sold meth, and I was introduced to meth at you know right around 19 or 20. So, spent 10 years married or you know, with my first wife as a pathological liar, basically, um, double life kind of halfway taking care of my stuff at home, but not really going back to the streets. I grew up on running those streets, still hanging out with, with what I knew. Um, and, uh, eventually around 30, you know, she had enough and divorced me. Um, there was foreclosures in there. I mean, uh, repossessions, just horrible human being, horrible father, horrible husband. And uh, finally had enough of my crap around 30 and divorced me. Well, when she divorced me, I turned it up 10 notches and started running the streets of Atlanta, kind of hooked up with a pretty well-known drug dealer um, and became kind of his right-hand man for a couple of years, bouncing around hotel to hotel and uh, landed me in prison for three years. So spent three years in prison, <clears throat> but I'll, I'll always say Prison was one of the best things that ever happened to me personally. It gave, you know, 20 years of some sort of drug abuse um, from the time I was just 12 or whatever till I was 30. And it gave me for the first time the chance to clear my head and actually think about who I am and who I wanted to be. And I started to really lay a foundation of faith pretty early on in that journey. Um, Going to the, you know, the uh, little... Uh, the guy, there's, I'll never forget this older man, his name, I think his name was Red, would come in once a week and have a Bible study. And I don't know, I just really started to, I was walking around the day room one day and, and the sunlight shone through the thing. And I had my $5 jailhouse radio on listening to Christian music. And I don't know, I kind of felt this presence really early on. I, you know, I, I did. And, and I went to the Bible studies and I had some people inside too, that were other prisoners that were older than me that were really kind of, you know, pouring into me and stuff a little bit. 
So fast forward through prison. Um, right as I'm about to get out the last couple of months, my aunt and uncle will drive up um, because I got to a transitional center and was able to leave on Sundays. So they would drive up, pick me up, take me to church, like drive an hour, pick me up, take me to church, drive an hour, but I mean, every Sunday. So I really, by the time I got out of prison, I was like openly praising Christ in church. Like I had a, a really solid foundation of faith at that point. And it's a really good thing that I had one because uh, within the first three weeks or so of me getting out, my mom overdoses and is in an ICU for a week. So imagine a like a stroke victim, severe stroke victim, mouth hanging open, eyes rolled in the back of her head for five days to the point to where like some conversations are being had and I can kind of hear whispers of making decisions and stuff. And I feel like I just basically prayed my mom alive at that point because I'd lost so much time. You know, I just didn't want that to be it. She pulled through. Um, and back up just a little bit. So my sister and her boyfriend, when they would come around my mom, when you mixed my mom's addiction and then their access to drugs and stuff and their addiction issues, it was just a very toxic, toxic, you know, recipe for disaster. So, um, yeah, uh, I get my mom kind of away from them and into an apartment and, um, I'm on the back porch with her one day and, and she gets a phone call from my sister and they need somewhere to stay. Now, granted, my mom had just gotten out of her, you know, ICU and, and her overdose and all that. So I, uh, I kind of was beside her during the phone call and I got her to stand strong and say, you know, I can't, you're going to have to figure it out for your own for once. And, um, she didn't let her come home. So I was feeling good about it. You know, I felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, but what I didn't know was about a month later, I would get a phone call at 7.30 in the morning that my sister had overdosed in some crappy hotel room by herself in Atlanta and passed away. So here I find myself driving about 30 minutes to tell my mom who had just gotten an overdose, just gotten over an overdose herself that her only daughter, you know, had died. So I'm carrying that guilt of should I have let her come home all these things and obviously that's the worst morning of my life um having to tell my mom and deal with that and then having her look at me and kind of always wonder does she blame me at some you know at some level so I wrestled with that but kind of pulling my mom through um and I get her into a different apartment and I'm working five minutes away from her and I'm checking on her every day. Um, but at this point, she's pretty much like from the years of drug abuse and everything that she'd been through, she's pretty much insane. Like I would sit outside of her apartment door and hear her have these conversations with no one, like evil conversation, like stuff vile, just I can't even really explain it. Conversations with no one um, until one day. On my lunch break, I uh, went to check on her and she had suicide by overdose and I found her on my lunch break. <clears throat> so at that point, my faith was definitely rocked to my core. I was, um, I relapsed. I picked up pain pills off of the floor of her apartment that day, threw them on my mouth, walked outside and called the police. So that's kind of the, the end of the downward spiral. Um, 
a couple of months go by. Um, and like I said, kind of going back to that foundation of faith and stuff, and I feel like that that's the reason that I was able to call my wife and say, uh, hey, this is going on. And for the first time, I kind of handled it like a man. I called her and I said, hey, I said, actually I called her, got her home, sat her on the couch, and I said, hey, you know, that day I relapsed. I've been doing this for three, I don't know, two or three months, something like that, and I need help, you know, so we called a pastor of, of a church that we had just started going to. It was actually a startup church and and he spoke with me and, and I got some support and, and I was able to kick it. And, um, through all that, I've, I've built a family and a career and a business and, you know, I've, I've managed to, uh, managed to make something out of myself. And then now, um, I've, uh, about two years ago or so, I really went through this, this time of my life where, um, through some circumstances with my wife that um, God put it on my heart. You know, I kind of always carried around a victim mentality a little bit. Um, why me? Why did I have to go through this? It's not fair or whatever. And uh, he put it on my heart that it's all been for a reason that, uh, you know, I've been sharpening you for a reason. And, 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 you know, so once that thought and that, that comfort entered my heart, everything changed. And, uh, I mean, that just, the the power of what it sounds like, you know, to be going through what some would consider pure hell, uh, and then to come out on that other side. When it came to your aunt and uncle coming to pick you up from from the home, who initiated that relationship? Did you reach out to them to, to start to cultivate it again, or was that more of them seeing a change and investing in that? I mean, they always cared a lot for me because, um, you know, there had kind of been a few people in my life that had really been the parents and been the, the people of support that there was the way that they're supposed to be there. Um, so I think they always felt, you know, in a different, you know, they, they've seen me grow up with no one else, um, around my age. Cause my mom parents had me so young and, and just, I don't know, I think they kind of seen the, the life that I had led and, 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 been, and the things that I've been through and, and for whatever reason knew, knew my heart and, uh, wanted to make sure, you know, that they did whatever they could do to make sure that, that I was the man that I, that I can be. So that time that you had in prison when you were alone and really kind of searching for something, what were those key elements that really kind of came alongside you and created this change? I would say, you know, the biggest things that I focused on were, were my two, two kids that I had at the time. Um, and just really thinking about the life that, that I wanted to have, that, that the legacy that I wanted to leave was not one of, of, of the path that I had walked for the past, you know, 20 years. And like, I just knew that I could do better and be better. And, and I had more, to give in me. Um, and like I said, that, that injection of, of spate of faith and, and spirituality really for the first time in my life, uh, was, it was a big part of that, I think, but I didn't really develop, um, a real relationship with Christ until like I said, when I went through that thing like two years ago, like I would call myself a Christian, you know, up to that point, but I don't think I really understood it until just two years ago. 
Yeah, and I think few people actually understand what the love of Christ is until you go through something like this or through through the point to where, you know, you, you think Job, where you, you finally hit rock bottom type mentality. And that's that's a tough one, but I like what you said. I, the legacy I wanted to leave was not the one I had been living for 20 years. That's that's reinvigoration. That's that's picking yourself up. Yeah, sure. Okay, so you've kind of danced around it a little bit. You you started to mention it, but how do you define spiritual resilience? That's an easy one for me. Spiritual resilience is nothing more than a personal relationship with Christ. Okay, so how do you develop that within yourself? I think being available, I think um, through prayer, through, and, you know, just looking inward at a level that not many people do, um, but really being available and opening yourself up to really experience him and feel him, feel him in you. Like I've had some, a couple of months ago, I was, I was going through a little something and I couldn't sleep. <clears throat> I hadn't slept well in a long time. And uh, a thought hit me. I said, maybe I haven't slept because I haven't prayed tonight. And before I could pray, as clear as, I mean, before I could, I was at a hotel room out of town working. And before I could move the covers, as clear as day, I heard, get on your knees. And then before I could get out of the bed, a little bit louder, a little bit firmer, clear as day, get on your knees to the point to where I'm in my hotel room by myself and I go, okay, okay. <laughs> I hit my knees and I have to back up a little bit. The Sunday before the pastor was preaching on Ezekiel and how um, he wanted to go back to Jerusalem because it had been a hundred years since Jerusalem was de- Jerusalem was destroyed. Yet he wasn't a carpenter or a builder and he didn't really know what to do to, to go back and, and help, you know, his land. So he, he, prayed for intensely for like four days without ever asking for anything. And it hit me that day in church. I said, man, I've never prayed like that ever. Mm. That night I hit my knees, a dirty hotel room floor facing the carpet. And when I tell you that the energy that entered my body was so intense that by the time I made it back to my bed, I was like convulsing for like two minutes and I couldn't stop shaking. It was the most surreal just um intense feeling that I, I can't explain it except for just energy and warmth and um i don't know i've had a cute few experiences like that since then and the more available i make myself and more obedient i make myself the the you know the, the more he, he manifests himself and, and shows me that i'm on the right path oh absolutely 100 percent. so that's that's the personal side of the relationship with christ how do you transition that into your family? Cause you're married now you you've got, mm-hmm. you've got your kids. How, how has that been built up within your family unit now moving forward for the past two years? Yeah. So when we went through that thing and all this thing started happening, I, I, I changed internally, but I never really talked about it. Um, you know, because I feel like it's one of those things where you have to, like lead by example. So I just ch- changed everything I did without really talking about it to the point to where my wife, you know, obviously noticed and, and, and seen the, the fruits of, of my work. And 
and everything. And so she kind of started to change with me. And, and then before you know it, you know, I've become like the real like leader of my home. And I, it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's a work in progress. I mean, it takes, it takes time. It's taken me 10 years from the time I got arrested through this and this and this and this up and down and, you know, forward, backwards, forward, backwards, figure something out. Um, so like, don't let me like I've got everything figured out or whatever, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm the leader of my home. I'm the spiritual leader of my home. Um, you know, I pray, like I pray with my kids. I, I let them see the way that I praise and, you know, I don't know, man, it's just in everything that we do, they understand that, that he is the center. And I think that's the first part of healing is understanding that you are in fact broken because you can't heal what you don't know isn't broken. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And this internal work, you know, this, this, you know, really is just kind of getting started, you know, really, really looking in and, you know, so I think it's, it's probably a lifelong journey. You know, I don't know that you ever quite get there. I know as, I mean, I know as a Christian, you know, we never get there until we get home. Right. But I don't know. It's a work in progress, man. Never stop learning. Never stop growing. Pay attention. Make yourself available. Have faith and walk. Yeah, one hundred percent. I, uh, I, I definitely could not have said it any better by any stretch of the imagination. You, you have lived through so much. You've gone through so many different things that we could unpack going forward. But I, I. I'd like you to pick just one specific moment and kind of walk us through how you had to rely solely on spiritual resilience in order to make it through something. Give us that, that one portion that, that speaks to you personally. Yeah, I think it, it would be, it would be, you know, from the morning of having to tell my mom about my sister through sitting outside of her apartment and and hearing all those things and not really knowing what to do, not even know if there's anything that could be done. Honestly, I don't think that there was at that point. Um, I just had to believe, you know, and I just had to, to have faith. I just had to have that relationship. You know, I just had to trust. And I think that's probably the hardest thing to be able to do, especially, I mean, you know, thinking back to your mom and you having to help her make the decision to say no to your sister coming home. It wasn't a, it wasn't the idea and the concept that you weren't able to, but you, you understood where your mom was in that moment and why it needed to happen and trying to navigate through that with her. I, th I think there's always going to be that thought of what if, you know, did I or did I not? But those are those decisions and choices that we have to make in order because of the fact that you'd been there and you'd, you'd seen that. Yeah. And then like now, I think you get to a place where you, you kind of understand that as bad and as hard as everything was, it's how it had to be. Um, to get me here. I almost view my wife, my, my mom's life, you know, most people would view it as one way, um, but I almost see it sacrificial and beautiful at this point because it's made me who I am. Sacrificial and beautiful. 
Wow. I mean, to look back and be able to see it in that way, to be able to paint that picture just a little bit differently. But using your story from the past to move forward, what are the types of things that you're doing now in order to help other people maybe that have been in similar situations as you? Yeah, for sure. So um, three or four months ago, um, just kind of looking at the world around me and everything that I've been through, I couldn't just sit back anymore. Um, so we started the resilient man, we started resilient man project, you know, started as a podcast. I mean, we're 12 or so episodes in now, um, but it's quickly, you know, turned into a, a good solid social media following and, and I'm going to, you know, start public speaking, um, hosting events. Um, I want to start a community, um, all these things, you know in the infant stages for sure but they're you know it's like i just sold like my, my golf club all kinds of things that i used to do you know for fun and, and i just at this place where if it's not i used to be this huge football fan i mean i'm in georgia we play for national championship tonight and i like barely even remembered that the game was coming on and it's like i'm just at this place where if it's not like purpose driven if it's not if it's not making an impact i just don't have time for it and I don't know. So resilient man project is where my heart is. I mean, I have another business. Um, you know, we do, we do industrial flooring and residential flooring, resinous flooring. Um, but man, my heart is in this mission. This, I almost want to call it a ministry at this point. Like my heart is in this. lost you i lost you oh you got me now there you are fantastic yep. sorry. sorry you know what first rule 101 <laughs> of podcasting don't mute yourself and then start talking i kind of did it the backwards way i apologize to jeff who is going to have the joy of linking these together uh yay brother uh i think that whenever we talk about ministry we try to take this concept and idea of our company. So like taking wartime leadership ministry or resilient man ministry, only to realize that sometimes that can kind of throw some people off and turn them away from what we're trying to do and what the outcome is that we're yeah. shooting for. Uh, so I, I have actually personally left that off of the name, you know, the, the LLC just simply because I want to, be seen and be able to invest in others in that way that Christ would without necessarily like, I don't want to say shoving it down people's throats, but you, you know what I mean, right? I understand. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird or not weird, but it's kind of crazy that when this thing started, the whole premise was I want to share my story, but I don't necessarily like, like you just said, I'm speaking to past versions of myself. The last thing a past version of myself wants to do is to be preached at or whatever. So I want to like continuously point to Christ is what got me here. But it's taken a complete turn um, since it started. And, and I mean, like he's out in front of everything I do. And it just is what it is at this point. Well, and even the, the T in resilient is a cross in your, uh, in your podcasting uh, logo, which is really beautiful to be able to see. Uh, it just, it pops out. So I guess in that way, without saying it, you're saying it. 
That's so right. really, really awesome. What is the Resilient Man Project? What are you doing with that, the podcast? The, uh, the podcast is I bring people, well, I bring people on kind of like myself that have been through things. And, and see, I feel like, the, you know, men have a hard time being vulnerable. Men have a really hard time sharing. Um, but I also think that, that men are kind of just waiting on somebody to go first, you know kind of gives them permission at that point to, to share their struggles and their stories. So it's kind of the idea, you know, if you listen to the first couple episodes, I definitely went first and kind of shared everything. Um, and, and the, the response has been amazing. So other guests now have come on and kind of shared theirs. And we talk about the things that they learned. It's not always spiritual. Some are, some aren't. Um, but we talk about what they've been through, uh, you know, the, the lessons learned through that and, and, you know, stories. And that's, that's really the premise is just, you know, I want men to, man, there's so much power and vulnerability and, uh, that's it. Uh, I, I think it's 100% true. You, uh, you are evidence of that. And I, and I applaud you for what you're doing because you've taken your story and now you're helping other people craft their stories. I mean, in looking at the episodes and the people that you have on, uh, you can just see that there's this, it's, it's not like, you know, the safe space, right? But it's, it's a place where people of like minds or like identity are coming together to be able to share stories. And, and you're using it really, really well. You're kind of helping and navigating, facilitating these conversations to allow people a moment of healing. I think would be a good way of saying it. Yeah. Never really looked at it like that, but yeah, I think I, so. I, I, I know so <laughs> because I'm reading it and I'm looking at it and I'm seeing it in you. And if you can see it in yourself, I mean, you're two years into let's, let's be honest. You're two years into this healing journey. And, and it is truly yeah. a story of resilience because resilience is picking yourself off, picking yourself up, dusting off the deal. But sometimes you need help in doing that. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Definitely need brotherhood, man. Brotherhood is the the antidote to save this world, in my opinion. Yeah, but I think that we're afraid of that a lot of the time. Oh yeah, hundred uh, percent. I think 100%. in people like your case, uh, in in my case, you know, we're we're. I think brotherhood brings a different meaning to to people, especially whenever you you cross over into that Christian realm. When now you talk about brotherhood yeah. in that we're brothers, daughters, sons, sisters, you know, within this community. Yeah, I think, I think both, you know, I think Christian or not, you know, if you're not, I, I still think that there's a lot of power just in, in men supporting men and being vulnerable with each other and, and sharing our stories and what we've been through. Um, there's obviously tons of power. Um, once you inject Christ into that, but you know, regardless, I think brotherhood is super important. Um, that's really kind of the goal. I think a resilient man eventually is, is to have a community of, of people that are don't mind being vulnerable. Don't mind saying, Hey, I screwed up and I've been through this and Hey, I've, you know, this is what I learned and this is how I got through it. So that the next man who is about to go through it or in the middle of it, um, you know, has a roadmap, you know, to get to the other side and not destroy them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not destroy them is very, is, is the difficult part because we, we allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And then sometimes we get hurt by that vulnerability 
And that's that becomes another scab that we then put up on ourselves. So, yeah. So I, I really appreciate you, Jonathan, and your vulnerability today to be able to share your story. Uh, and I know that that you're a reading man because the hard 70, what is it? Hard 75? 75, 75 hard. hard. Yeah, I'm on my yeah. second round this year or not like this, this calendar year or whatever, but this, yeah, sev- second round. Um, it's been amazing. Uh, it's, it's an absolutely free program and anybody who's, I don't get anything from it or whatever. I'm just telling you, like, if, if you're in you need to find that next gear, uh, man, it'll do it. And it's not just physical it's the mental. It's, it's everything. It's confidence. It's, it's, it's all the good things that you need. But in it, you have to read. Part of that is actually reading what? 10 chapters or 10 pages a day. I think that's what it is. 10 pages a day okay. for 75 And days, so yeah. in doing so, I know that you have found some good books to come alongside you and to help you on this journey. So, why don't you give us one, maybe two recommendations that you have for books? So I think this is a book that really kind of is a needle mover. Um, and that's Atomic Habits. I don't know if you've ever read Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits is an amazing book. Uh, and I'm big into psychology and things like that. Like, I, I really like... Uh, Man, I'm having a hard time deciding between this psycho cybernetics. It's that's a really cool book written by a uh, plastic surgeon, but from a psychology standpoint about how just because people change their appearance didn't change their heart. Like it's a really cool book. So those are the two that I like. Well, James Clear with Atomic Habits. I think I think that's who the author was of Atomic Habits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and what was the second one again? You said. Uh, psycho cybernetics the fact that people change their appearances does not change their heart there's a lot there to unpack and i can't wait to actually read that one it's a cool book well hey john jonathan do you have any final words for the listeners that we have today i just you know you're stronger than you think you are you know if you're in the middle of it just keep taking that next step you know and if, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you know, make yourself available and um, he'll show himself. Well, Jonathan, I appreciate you allowing us to come on this journey with you to just have this short, you know, less than an hour episode to be able to unpack what was years of pain and turmoil. But you, sir, are truly resilient and a resilient man has others that join him. So if you want to connect with Jonathan, we will have a link to all of that below, uh, as well as the podcast. I'm going to go ahead and post that in the description below as well. 12 episodes so far to be able to get caught up is going to be super easy, but I will tell you that the impact will be a lifetime. So thank you again. Jonathan, we are grateful for having you here. Today's episode is only possible thanks to my friend and producer, G. Frazier with 369sounddesign.com. He is the one that has the hardest job of us all because he gets to make me sound good. So we are blessed by the entire team here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast. See you next time. Be blessed.